in the uh, Gospel of John, Jesus appears on the scene for the very first time, and he begins with a question. The first words out of his mouth in the Gospel of John are a question. For me, it's a rather haunting question, and it serves as kind of like a theological motif uh, for the Gospel of John. And of course, um, in the book, Jesus presents himself with seven I am statements. They're all sort of in response to this question. Jesus presents himself as the the bread of life, the light of the world, the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life, and of course, the vine. And John's highly artistic, of course. He's sort of weaving together these images and metaphors to sort of, I think, respond to the first question that Jesus asked, but it all starts with four simple words, a question. This is how it goes in John 1. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? What do you want? Man, that's a great question. What do I want? What do you want? What do we want? And initially, the question is pretty easy to answer, and a number of artists and musicians have sought to answer that question through tune, through song. It's easy, right off the top of my head. Maybe I'm hungry. I want food. Money, definitely money, money. Maybe a meal at a Michelin star restaurant. A Tesla, I don't know. Sex, maybe. Lots of different things. A vacation. It's not, e- it's not hard to answer that question initially. There's many things that we want, but what I find haunting about this question is if you keep asking it, keep rolling it around in your mind, it can get a little bit strange because there's always something beneath the thing. Question is layered, I would say, like an onion. And if you, this is a great way to do some prayer activity is picture yourself Jesus asking that question and then just go start answering. What is it behind that want? Besides my immediate needs, what do I really deeply want in life? And let that sort of question simmer there for you. Pay attention to it this week. I think it can be revealing. And obviously, uh, we're doing a little series on Jesus' questions. Uh, We can't get to every human desire and want throughout the course of the season, but uh, I want to play around with that question. And the want... I would like to focus on this morning, really came into focus for me this week. It was like I was handed a parable for the very thing that I wanted to talk about this morning. You see, it was 528. I was reading it right on the stove, 528. I was making soup, making my own wonton soup. And Kristen had called and said, I'll be home at 530. And I said, I'll have dinner right ready for you. So I'd set the table. My soup had just come to a simmering boil. It was right ready. Had some shrimp in there. Oh, it was, smelled good. And Kristen walked in the door. I said, welcome home. Perfect timing. Supper's just right ready to go. And she said, um, there's a man in our driveway, and uh, uh, he lost his car. He doesn't know where his car is. And I told him, you drive him around to find his car. I said, why did you do that? She's like, well, he looks really cold. 
and he doesn't really speak English, so I told him you would drive him around, and she could tell from my face that I wasn't thrilled. My supper was ready. I was hungry. And she said to me, well, I can drive him around if you want, which, oh, I should have called her bluff. No way was she driving around a strange man to look for his car. Not a chance. So she knew what she was doing. So I said, oh, fine. So we go out, and this man, he does look very cold. And from what I can tell through his broken English, he, he was coming from Guelph to the passport office. He had parked, walked there. It was closed, and he couldn't remember where he parked his car. So we got in the car. I'm like, all right, let's go and find your car. And I picked up three clues from the man. First, it was a Dodge van. License plate, half unknown. 919. 919 was in there somewhere. The second clue is he said that as he parked and, and started walking, somebody had said to him, not this street, not the next street, but the following street is Weber, and the passport office is there. So I'm doing grid work in my head. Okay, all right. And then the final clue he gave me is when he parked, there's a variable here, he either went left, right, left, or right, left, right. So driving around, the immediate vicinity. Okay, you can't find it there. So now I'm starting to, hmm, I'm annoyed. I know my soup's probably getting cold. So I said, all right, sir, you got out of your car, you walk straight, and then turn left, and he said, right. I said, okay, wait. So you parked, you walked straight, and then you went right. He said, left, right, left, right. So you parked, went straight, went left, right. Oh my goodness, I thought I was in an Abbott and Costello scene here. It was just, oh, which way did you go, sir? 5.30, 6.11 p.m., my phone rings, it's Kristen. Pick up. She said, where are you? I said, I'm still driving around. She's like, oh, I was just calling to make sure you didn't get kidnapped. <laughs> kidnapped? At the time, I thought that might actually be more interesting than what I was doing. I'd like to know what the ransom request would be. But I said to her, I left 40 minutes ago. If I was kidnapped, I could be in Woodstock, Mississauga, halfway to the border. You're just calling now? <sighs> now it's 6.30. I've been on the road for an hour. And we cannot find this car. It's amazing how many Dodge vans are parked downtown Kitchener when you're looking for them, but we couldn't find the car. And at this point, I was like, who do you call when someone's lost their car? And I couldn't think of anyone. And I was like, the police. But it's not an emergency, so I shouldn't call 911. When I looked it up and all the police stations were closed, I thought they were open 20 minutes. Serve and protect. What's going on? I can't call the police. And then it crossed my mind. I thought, how much can be asked of a good Samaritan? I've put in an hour. The thought in my head was, I just got to say to this guy, we gave it our best shot. I'm going to have to let you out here. And I'm wrestling with that thought in my mind, and in that moment, what I realized is that I had no control over the situation. It had been in, conscripted into something. 
and was angry and irritated because I wasn't in control. I didn't like either of my options, keep looking for who knows how long or drop this guy off. And I, how do you do that? Bye. Like, I, I don't know how you do that in good conscience. And so I felt like I had no control. And I had written this sermon the day this happened. So this is in my mind. I wanted to talk about control anyway. Because I think in terms of human desires, if we start going layered down beneath our wants, we really want control. So one of our deep, deep wants, control over our lives and our destinies, control over the situations we face in life. And deep down, I think we all have this desire, and I think it comes from a good place. I think this desire is innate. It's a God-given desire. And one of the first pictures we have in Scripture is humanity being given control, control over the environment, name things, subdue things, take control of the environment because it's a deep primal instinct in us. If you're going to survive, you have to be able to control your environment at least a little. That's how you survive. There's safety there. And that's where our natural desire, I think, from God comes from. It's a God-ordained intrinsic desire to want control. But the desire and drive we have for control as humans, it oftentimes is it's, it's a desire and a drive that can leave us feeling miserable. A desire, when taken too far, can sometimes leave us worse off. We desire to control for basic needs, but beyond that, we can't really control anything. Control of our circumstances, you could say, is really just an illusion. And when we run into that, it frightens us. It can shake us. It can leave us angry, cranky, irritable, deflated, humbled even. And we're often confronted with powerful reminders that despite our strong desire to control our situations in life, it can be an illusion. And Jesus' disciples, they experienced this. Um, one particular day, and a lot of their days look the same, right? Jesus is going to teach, he's going to heal. And so on this particular day, that's what happens. Jesus teaching, healing, it gets towards the end of the day, and Jesus is tired. He's just, he's done a lot of work, he's tired. And uh, the disciples are like, well, we got it, Jesus, you don't worry. You just rest, we'll take control from here. We got to travel. So they get themselves in a boat, and this is how the story unfolds in Mark 4. Mark 4. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, and just as he was in the boat, and there were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? You still have no faith. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. What I find interesting about this story is that Jesus doesn't scold his disciples for like their poor sailor ring abilities. I don't know if that's a word, sailoring. 
sailor abilities. They've been doing this their whole life. He doesn't scold them because they, you know, sail into a storm. He doesn't scold them for that. He understands storms happen. We can't control that. What Jesus understands is that circumstances are beyond our control. They're things we can't control in life. But was, what does concern Jesus is this, how they reacted, how they responded to an uncontrollable event. Sure, you don't control the weather, but you do have control over how you respond to it. I think there's something incredibly valuable for us here, something to be reminded of regularly. We can't control our circumstances in life. Jesus reminds us here that the only thing we really have control over in this life is the quality of our character, our actions and responses, and what we contribute to the world. That's it. That's all we get. Okay, you're in a storm. Fair enough. It's no good. Can't control that, but you can control how you respond. You can control the quality of your character. And I think everything inside of us, right, wants to rebel against that. I want control over my job. I want control over my circumstances and my days. And yet, I think there's a reason the Apostle Paul lists self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit. We need a desire for control to help us survive. But beyond that, what we can really control is the self. And we need to, if we're going to live in line with the Jesus path, understand we can't control certain things but we can control our character, the way we respond. You ever seen an adult have a temper tantrum like a child? I was in the airport heading to Africa. The flight, right, supposed to take off at 11.30. It's delayed, it's delayed, and then finally, boom, Sitting there, your flight's canceled, and everyone's like, well, now what? So everybody rushes to, I, forget, I don't even know what airline it was, the airline counter, hey, what's going on? And everyone's not happy, but there was one man in the back who I'm like, good heavens, I haven't even seen a toddler have this kind of temper tantrum, just lost its screaming obscenities, and at the end of the day, he still lost his flight like the rest of us. We can kick and scream and rant and rave, and at the end of the day, it really doesn't change anything. And so we have a a question. How do we want to respond? What can we control? And it's a hard truth that whenever life seems chaotic or unfair, the first instinct is bitterness, anger, fear. But the wisdom of following Jesus, I think, is this. Listen, the control you thought you had was an illusion anyway. It's not an easy pill to swallow, but what you can control is how you react, quality of your character, what you give to the world. And the thing is, this sounds easy enough, but it isn't. It really, really, really isn't. And yet, the more difficult thing is this. If we can't get the little things in life right, like how we respond to a flight canceled, What's going to happen when we face the really big storms in life? Because the reality is at some point all of us will hear uncomfortable news, sobering words, maybe about illness, health, 
loved ones. And if we can't get it right when our flight is canceled in the grocery store, when we can't get it right when the kids are bothering us, if we can't get it right then, what chance do we have of responding well when the really big storm hits? Can't control our circumstances. But, you know, the thing is this, while that's undoubtedly true, for most of us, our days go pretty smooth, all things considered, right? Which is great. But I think an even more difficult thing to accept than we can't control our circumstances in life is that we can't control other people. Desire pulsing through our veins. One of the ways we pursue control is through other people. Because what an awesome world it would be if everyone just lived and did what we thought they should do. What a world that would be if my kids and my spouse and my coworkers, if everyone just, you show us the way, Brad. That'd be great. I'd feel more secure in life. But trying to control other people is, is like herding cats. It doesn't work so well. Trying to control people, I've often found it actually has the opposite effect of what we intend. Jesus, I think, gives us a very memorable way of reminding us of this. Matthew 7, he says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I love this imagery. But what's funny to me is whenever I read it, I always read it as I'm the one with the pearls. For some reason, I never go, oh, maybe I'm the dog and the pig in the story here. It's unfathomable to me that somebody would give me pearls and I would reject them. But I think what Jesus is getting at here is this. When you try to give your pearls of wisdom to others, try to control them that way, it can often create a reaction in people. They almost want to do the opposite thing, right? Anyone who's ever experienced backseat driving knows this, right? Like, oh, Hey, you should slow down. Yeah, really? Well, now I want to speed up. What do you think about that? Hey, there's a turn coming up. I'll get over when I want to. Just, ugh, that impulse. You ever try to control your significant other? I don't know about you, but sometimes Kristen embarrasses me in public. And we got a little thing. She knows it. I give her a little tap when no one's looking. I just give her the... She knows what I'm doing, trying to control her. She'll say something embarrasses me. I'm like, mm, or I give the eye, right? You've been married long enough. All you need is a look, and it's like, uh-oh. But she has this capacity to, when I do those things, be like, oh, I'll take it to the next level. You want to go there? I often consider Glenn here as the swine I cast my pearls before. So often I give him advice, and he just tramples it under his feet. Glenn was interested in running years ago, and boy, did I have some wisdom for him. It just uh, read, Born to Run, where I was converted to the idea that humans are supposed to run barefoot, just little sock things over your feet, and boy, did I give him a spiel about that, and he just looked at me, eh, no, not going to do that. In fact, he was grumpy about it. I'm not going to do your bare feet thing. No. So many times people, or I don't know, I'm so curious what parents say to teenagers these days, but back in my day when I was a teenager, the wrong crowd was the lingo. Parents would be, we're concerned, I think you're hanging around the wrong crowd. I don't know a single teenager who was like, oh really? Oh, 
oh, okay, well, hey, why don't I just drop my friends? So wise, parents. So often in, in, in life, even collective control, right? We look at things like the Arab Spring, the Tea Party, movements like that. I mean, mm, stop controlling us. Or, or I shudder to think what might happen if we had another pandemic because I swear just all of the world is like, yeah, no, we're not shutting down again. Just, no, you can't control us. So often, no, we push back. Again, Jesus is like, you can't control other people. And when you do, you risk them turning on you. The opposite effect. Remember, one of the best pieces of advice I got about preaching was, was Rob, Rob Bell way back in the day because he, he talked about in preaching, you have to surrender the outcome. No matter what you say, it can be misconstrued, it could be misunderstood. People, you might think you've got the greatest sermon in the world and people are falling asleep and you, you just have no control over how things are received. And it's interesting because back in the, in, in the day, I used to drive Kristen nuts. We'd go home after a Sunday and just pepper her with questions. Was, was that a good sermon? Yeah, it was. Oh, you're lying. Or I'd be like, was that a good sermon? She's like, no. And I'd be like, why do you say that to me? Why are you going to hurt me that way? She couldn't get it right. But just this, uh. And understand this idea, just we've got to surrender, control, surrender the outcome with other people. We can't control people in life. And when we try to, I think at the best of times it might work out, maybe, but oftentimes it ends up even worse. The reminder of, of Scripture, I think, is this. It's time to surrender and relinquish control in our lives of others and how they're acting, how they're responding. That, that is in our job because the only thing that we really have control over in this life is the quality of our character, our actions, responses, what we contribute and give back to the world. It's all we get. John 21 might be my favorite chapter in all the Bible. I love it. There's this beautiful picture of Peter being reinstated. He's denied Jesus, of course. So things are a little awkward need a reinstatement. And at the end of this reinstatement ritual, Jesus offers this word to Peter, this image, really. Talks about, hey, Peter, when you're young, you kind of did what you want, had control, but when you're old, he says, there's going to be a belt tied around your waist, and people are going to take you to places you would rather not go. Love that imagery. Faith, life is often like someone puts a belt around us and starts taking us to places we would rather not go. For Peter specifically, Jesus was giving him an image of a rather painful and humiliating death that Peter would experience. But whether that be our faith or not, life will take us where we would rather not go. Our faith will take us there. Our circumstances in life, the relationships we have with other people will most certainly at times take us where we would rather not go. And we can't control that. There's two ways to deal with it. One, fight, kick, scream, have a tantrum, and it won't change anything. 
or you can surrender and release the control you thought you had but never did in the first place. Because life has a way of conscripting us. And at 6.30 p.m., there I am with this man in the car. And it dawned on me, because I had written this this day, life has a way of conscripting you. You know, it got me thinking, why do we go to church? I never give a sermon that I don't preach to myself first, that I don't think I need to hear myself first. And I can honestly tell you that if I hadn't have been reminded of this, I would have, with that man, said, time's up. I got soup to eat, a life to live. I want control back. But in that moment, as I realized, you know what? Life just conscripts you sometimes. Ties a belt around your waist and says, I'm taking you where you'd rather not go. Finally. We're driving. And at one point he was starting to get a little particular. He said, we've, we've searched this area enough, don't you think? I'm like, listen, I'm trying to grid in my head. We need to be over by the library. He's like, no, I, I, this isn't right. Has me go down Weber. I pull onto Madison Ave. And there in the dark, 919. And I pulled on it with my high beams. And I looked over and he was like, ha, ah, we did it. And the two of us embracing in the car. Ah, ha. We found the car. Two hours. And as he was getting out of the car, he, in his broken English, can I, can I give you something? <laughs> no. You've given me enough, sir. Given me enough. I texted Kristen and said, if my soup isn't hot when I get home, there's going to be <laughs> trouble. Get that. Life will take us where we'd rather not go. We don't get to control that. I'm going to ask the band to come and help us close here. We don't get to control our circumstances in life. We don't get to control other people. We don't get to control God. We don't get to control even how we are perceived and received by others. And we can fight and kick and scream about it all we want, but it won't change things. So the invitation to all of us, I think, is simple. Surrender control. And spend our time working on the things we can control who we are, our integrity, our character, what we give back to the world. And so my hope and prayer for us this week is that we would learn, even in the smallest, littlest moments, how to relinquish control and have moments of surrender.